Our passage this morning, like we'll say, is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And while you're turning there in your pew Bibles, over these next few weeks, Lord willing, we will finish the Sermon on the Mount, a series we started last time, um, last year at this, this same time in the fall, and that will get us into Advent at the end of November. And if you didn't know this, we're in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The conclusion actually started last time we were here with Mark preaching uh, in, in Matthew seven thirteen, And in Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus starts getting into his real message here. He starts setting off two gates, two paths, two voices, two trees. And he's setting before us what he wants us to see, that ultimately we have to make a choice here. And it might surprise us in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus doesn't end his sermon with a really inspiring story. He doesn't end his sermon with four points of application. He ends his sermon with these warnings. And this is why we like to preach through books of the Bible. Because if I just got to preach the passage I wanted to preach, I never would have picked a passage on the false prophets. In fact, I was talking to Stephen this week, asking him about our worship and our service, and he said, yeah, there's not a lot of hymns on the false prophets. And now you know my difficulty. There's not a lot of hymns on the false prophets, because this isn't easy teaching. But we do need the whole Bible, and that's why it's so important for us to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Some passages in the Bible, they do feel like food. They're comforting to us. They're strengthening to us. Other passages feel more like medicine. They don't go down easy, but they're essential for our health. And so the next couple of weeks, these passages will feel more like medicine. They are warnings for Jesus, but it's because he deeply cares about you. And you got an extra hour of sleep, so you can deal with it. All right. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the ways that you do reveal to us what we most need. And so I pray that you'd open our eyes and ears this morning to hear this word from your son. Lord, protect our hearts, protect our minds. Keep all other voices out during this time so we may hear from you and hear from you clearly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What happens in life when we start to listen to the wrong voices? This was the question that was behind Beth Macy's investigation into the American opioid crisis. Y'all might have heard of her book, might have watched the TV show Dope Sick. But in that work, she tried to understand how in the world have Americans got so addicted to opioids. And they weren't getting addicted out there on the streets. No, this didn't start on the streets. It actually started in doctor's offices. So what did she do? She interviewed lots of doctors. 
doctors across the nation, lots of doctors in our home state of Kentucky. All these doctors have started prescribing more and more pain medicine over the last couple of decades. And here's what she wanted to find out. How did this happen? And you know what the doctors told her? They said, we listened to the wrong voice. And her research showed they were right. You see, back in the mid-90s, Purdue Pharma, a pharmaceutical company led by the Sackler family, started pushing doctors and everyone about this new, powerful, miracle drug, OxyContin. This drug could relieve the most severest of pain and had no real side effects. And they promised the addiction rate on OxyContin is less than 1% of our patients. So don't worry. They can have their pain relieved and they have no real risk of addiction. And what we didn't know, and what the doctors didn't know, what the people didn't know, is that the Sackler family was getting really rich off pushing the product. You see, the doctors, the people, the FDA, everyone listened to the wrong voice. And this is Jesus' warning in our passage this morning. Jesus does not want us to fall victim to the wrong voice in our life. He does not want us to fall victim to the false prophet because he knows if you fall victim to the false prophet, your life will follow. Like I said, we are in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the last year, as we studied Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus has been laying out for us, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. If you are a follower of Christ, this is what your character will be. And Mark preached a couple weeks ago that Jesus said there are only two ways really to live. You have a narrow way that leads to life, a broad way that leads to destruction. And now Jesus is going to tell us there's not just two ways to live, there's actually two voices. And Jesus knows that if you listen to the wrong voice, you will end up going the wrong way. So he's very concerned about false prophets this morning. And we have three observations from our text. The reality of false prophets, the result of false prophets, and the recognition of false prophets. And I'll go through those one by one. First, the reality of false prophets. Look back at verse 15 there. Jesus starts out this section with one word, And that word is meant to wake us up. He says, beware, meaning pay attention, meaning be on guard, be vigilant against. So what is the threat that Jesus is is telling us? Beware of false prophets. And that word Jesus uses here is pseudo, meaning prophets that come to lie to you. If I were to ask you this morning, when you first walked in those doors, hey, what's your biggest threat in life? The first thing you might say is, Luke, chill out. Like, what, you're, you're greeting me with, what's the biggest threat in life? But the second thing you might say is, huh, yeah, I do have some lists of the biggest threats in my life. Here are some things that I think might be damaging to me or my family or my church. But you know what's scary? I don't think false prophets would be on that list. False prophets wasn't on the top of my list of the enemies I need to be looking out for. So we're going to have to do some work here with what Jesus is saying. So what's a prophet? Prophets show up in the Bible the first time officially with Moses. And what is Moses called to do? Moses is called to bring God's word to God's people. That's all that prophet means. It means speaking for someone else. In the context of the Bible, prophets mean speaking on behalf of God, speaking for God. When prophets speak, they say, thus saith the Lord. 
And this, in this way, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God. So when you think about prophets, don't think about prophecy necessarily of future-oriented. Yes, there was some of that. But they weren't necessarily only focused on the future. They were way more focused on the present. Prophets were trying to hold God's people accountable to his word right now. But inevitably what happened, as true prophets rose up, so did false prophets. And these false prophets came and they sounded just like the real prophets. They claimed to speak for God, but as we read in our Old Testament passage, they were actually speaking for themselves. And something strange starts to happen. You start to notice it once you get into the major prophets of the Old Testament. Those confusing books, those strange books, especially in the longer ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah. You start to realize that God's people start getting scared of something. They start feeling this threat. But what was ironic was it wasn't the threat they should be scared of. God's people in the Old Testament were always afraid of outside powers. Like Will said, they, they were trusting in chariots. They were so scared of these outside military nations coming and conquering them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines. But the greatest threat was never out there. The greatest threat was in here. Their greatest threat was the false prophet because it was the false prophet who was trying to turn them away from their only hope, God. And Jesus tells us in our passage this morning, nothing has changed. Our greatest threat this morning is not the ones that we see out there. They are still the ones that remain in here. So Jesus tells us, beware. I really want you to pay attention to this. And it's hard to see that. It's hard to see false prophets as the big threat that they are if you're just living right now. But if you look throughout history, it starts to become really, really clear. Sinclair Ferguson has written a book called In the Year of Our Lord. And what he does in that book is he scans all of church history. So each chapter is a different century of the church. And when you start reading that book, you start seeing these big themes starting to appear. And something that he points out that is so interesting is that there's always been two great enemies of the church. One is persecution from the outside The other is false prophets from the inside. And when you trace those two enemies throughout church history, one is a lot more dangerous than the other, but it's not the one that we typically think of. If you ask me this morning, would you rather face false teaching or would you rather face persecution? I would honestly say I'd rather face false teaching because I don't have a death wish. I don't want to be martyred. I don't, want, I don't want to be killed. I'm not crazy. But do you remember what Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember back in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 12? He tells his followers this, blessed are the persecuted. But now you fast forward two chapters and he says, beware of the false prophets. So according to Jesus, if you're under persecution, you're blessed. But if you're under false teaching, Beware. Why is that? Well, Sinclair Ferguson sums it up. Everywhere that persecution has happened, the church has only been united and strengthened. Everywhere that false teaching has happened, the church ends up becoming divided and ends up dying. And he says, if you want proof of that today, compare the church in Europe to the church in China 
China under extreme persecution has united, strengthened, and grown the church in almost every country in Europe under false teaching is slowly slipping away. And this is scary for us this morning. It really is because we are much more like Europe than we are China. We're not under the physical threat of persecution often, but we are under the threat of false teaching. So that's the reality of false prophets. We need to be aware of them. They exist in the Old Testament. They exist in the New Testament. And they've continued throughout the history of the church. Now let's look at the result of false prophets. Look back at verse 15. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Okay, Jesus, we need to be on guard against this. Why? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And Jesus pulls out his first image here to show how dangerous our situation is. And it's a vivid picture, isn't it? It's this picture of this hungry wolf that is coming to prey on innocent sheep. Why is false teaching so dangerous? False teaching is so dangerous because it is so, so deceptive. Notice the false prophets do not come announcing themselves, hey, church, just so you know, I'm going to be a false prophet. They don't come saying, hey, church, I'm actually probably going to say some things that's going to set you back in life. I'm actually probably going to say some things that is going to lead you down some some bad paths. No, the false prophets are the hungry wolves, and they always go undetected because they look just like the sheep. They look like the sheep, they dress like the sheep, they act like the sheep, and we're blind to them. Do you understand now Jesus' urgency and his warning? Did you hear this morning God's anger in the Old Testament passage of the false shepherds of Israel? This is why he's so angry. You shepherds are supposed to be feeding the sheep, yet you're eating the sheep. This warning is a deeply dire warning that comes from God's care for his flock. God cares so much for his flock that he does not want the sheep to be eaten. He wants them to be fed. So what is the result of false prophets? The sheep get deceived and they ultimately get destroyed. False prophets lead their followers to the same place that they're going. That's what we see in verse 18. That the bad tree is cut down and thrown into the fire of destruction. And that will actually get more into next week with Matthew seven twenty one, which is a passage not about the deceivers, but those that have been deceived. And as a church in the PCA that prides itself on our doctrine, that has a great value in theology, that loves good teaching, I do think we need to press in on this a little bit. These things can be good things. Our good theology is a very good thing. Our confessional standards are a good thing. The fact that we say creeds every week is such a good thing. But what might not be a good thing is we can easily dismiss Jesus' warning. This warning is for other churches that don't really care about teaching. This warning is for other churches that don't really care about doctrine or confessions or creeds. We're the theology people. We're the teaching denomination. But through the image of the wolf, Jesus is saying, you don't know how subtle this thing is. I'll give you an example. Fifty years ago, the pastor at 10th Prez in Philadelphia, his name was Donald Barnhouse, and he imagined a scenario in his sermon, what would it look like if Satan took over your city? It's a really fun exercise for us this morning. What would it look like if Satan took over the city of Lexington? 
We think chaos, right? We think destruction. We think evil. We think suffering. We think sin. Everywhere, so obvious when Satan comes for a city. But Dr. Barnhouse imagined a a different scenario. He was in the city of Philadelphia, and here's what he said. If Satan took over the city of Philadelphia, all the bad places would be closed, and the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who always smiled at each other. Everyone would be so nice and polite. There definitely wouldn't be any swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday, and Christ would not be preached. That's the main point. When false prophets come, it's not just a denial of Christ. It just might be that he starts getting assumed. All the morals of Christianity, but none of the Christ of Christianity. And that might seem far-fetched to you, that that could actually happen. But we do know this has happened. Andy Longley was here a couple weeks ago, one of our mission partners from the United Kingdom. He was in Scotland. Now he's in London, England, doing wonderful work there. And he has told many of us in this church, this is the exact same story of the Church of Scotland. And America is not Scotland, but we can learn from them. In the 1920s in Scotland, half of Scotland's population was connected to a church, which were almost all Presbyterian. And that church had good theology, good attendance, great buildings, all those things. But in less than 60 years, 1.3 million Christians is now down to 300,000. And that was in the 1980s. Now it's even less. What happened? Here's what one writer wrote. Talking about Scotland. Even if your doctrines were written by John Knox, your theology rooted in the Westminster Confession, and your buildings made of granite, when you lose Jesus, you lose the church. That's the bottom line. When you lose Jesus, you always lose the church, no matter what else. You see, in Scotland, Jesus was first proclaimed, then he became assumed, then he was lost. And I've seen that scenario play out so much over and over and over again doing college ministry on the campus, where students start to walk away from Jesus because they have misconceptions about Jesus. They're not actually walking away from the true Jesus. They're walking away from how Jesus was taught to them. So what do we do? If the reality is there is false prophets, if the result of false prophets is so much deception and destruction, then the question you should be asking right now is how in the world do I know who a false prophet is? Because I really want to know. That's exactly where Jesus goes to it. Let's finish there. How, How do we recognize a false prophet? This is actually Jesus' main point of the passage. And this was scary for me this week, thinking about I'm, I'm a teacher in this church. It was scary for me to think about, I, I need to recognize what a false prophet is. And thankfully for us, Jesus repeats it twice to make sure we don't miss it. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then he ends with verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And with that, Jesus switches his image away from animals over to agriculture. Did you see it? Verse 16. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy church bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Why does Jesus mix metaphors here? Why does Jesus switch his metaphor from the wolves illustration and now he's going into trees? 
Jesus' point is this. A wolf can disguise himself up to some point. That's why they're so deceptive. A tree cannot disguise itself. The fruit of a tree cannot be faked. A healthy tree will produce healthy fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. So you want to recognize what's false? Get close enough to see the fruit. That is Jesus' point here. If you want to recognize what is false, you have to get close enough to see what the fruit of that person actually is. So what is the fruit we need to recognize here? There's actually two, which might be really good to discuss in your parish groups. These tests to know what is false teaching, what's not false teaching. The first test, Jesus says, is you need to recognize what these people are saying. And this emphasizes for us the importance of God's word. It's not he says versus she says. The the words are under the standard of the scriptures. Does what this person say line up with scripture? You see, this warning, beware of false prophets, isn't random. It comes right after Jesus said, there is a narrow way that leads to death. There is a broad way that leads to life. You see, false prophets never talk about the narrow way. False prophets sometimes don't lie. They just don't tell the whole truth. They oftentimes divorce Christianity from its core doctrines. This is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He said, you're preaching grace without Jesus. You're preaching grace without the cross. Grace without discipleship. False prophets can't tell the whole truth. They can't say the hard things because it's about them. They want to eat the sheep, not help the sheep. So does their teaching line up with Scripture? That's the first test based on the context. The second thing is exactly what he says in this passage. Recognize what they're doing. And this for us emphasizes the importance of our church. This this emphasizes the importance of being in fellowship with each other and belonging together. The importance of parish groups and fellowship dinners. Because only when you know each other can you start to see the fruit that's coming from their lives. It's very dangerous to listen to teaching that you're not personally connected to, which is really scary for us in the information age. You need to, under, you need to know, does this, what this person's saying, does that line up with how they're living? Not perfectly, no one's perfect, but with integrity. There is a decreasing gap between what they say and what they do. The fruit that Jesus is talking about here is not ministry success. It's not how many people they're attracting. It's their life and the life they produce from their teaching. You see, false prophets cannot pass the relationship test. And that's why we need to be close to them to know what they're doing. Does their teaching lead to the fruit of the Spirit in their life and in yours? Is it leading to love, joy, peace, patience? Or is it creating division and destruction and complaining and cynicism? So those are the two tests. You recognize a false prophet by their fruit, the fruit of their teaching. Does what they say line up with Scripture? And they're doing. Does what they say line up with their life? And that is the application from this passage. Like I said, the goal of this passage, Jesus repeats it twice, is to recognize But Jesus doesn't want us just to recognize the false prophets. His goal this morning is not to turn TCPC into the number one heresy hunting church in America. That's not what he wants from this sermon, for us to all go out and point out all the false prophets everywhere. 
all the false teachers. He doesn't want you to just recognize a false prophet. He wants you to recognize the true prophet. Because in order for you to truly recognize a fake, you have to see the real. I'll show you what I mean. My first job that I ever had when I turned 16 was a bank teller. Don't ask me why I chose that job. I, didn't want, I don't know why I didn't do a fun job. I did a highly stressful job that I was not trained for or ready for in any way. I was just a naive 16-year-old that was trying to make $7 an hour. And that naivety quickly got taken advantage of my first weekend. So I worked on Saturday at, at First National Bank of London. No one else worked on Saturday, so they gave it to the new guy. And my first Saturday working at the bank, someone came through right at closing, which should have been a warning. Again, I wasn't trained. And he had a very large deposit of cash. Another warning. Again, I wasn't trained. And he dropped off a deposit of $9,500, to which I said, hey, man, looks like you're doing really well for yourself. Yeah, we'll take it. Here's your receipt. Hope you have a great weekend. So I took that deposit, closed up uh, the bank, went home for the weekend, and everything was great. Until Monday morning, my branch manager called me into her office and said, hey, did you take a large cash deposit on Saturday before closing? And I was like, yeah, why? And she told me that over half of that cash deposit was full of counterfeit money. And I wasn't fired, somehow, but I was trained. They started to say, we need to train this person that could be so naive to accept this large cash amount in deposit. And at that training, it was the next uh, four Saturdays, so after close on Saturday, I started going to training. The next four Saturdays, I got sent to training, and at that training, they did something really strange. I expected them to talk to me all about the counterfeit schemes out there, all the different counterfeit money, all the different plans to deceive the bank. But instead of studying counterfeit money, they had me study real money. They would literally give me a dollar and say, look at this for 30 minutes. Here's a $10 bill. Look at this for 30 minutes. Notice the threads on it, the blue and the red. Notice the weight to it. Notice the smell of it. Notice the texture of it, how it feels. And so after a while, this was, I mean, real fascinating work I was doing, looking at dollar bills. But I eventually asked why. Why do you only have me studying the real thing, the real money? And here's what they told me. There's so many different counterfeits out there, we cannot keep up with them all. There's so many different schemes, so many different tricks. You can't keep up with everything. But if you become an expert in the real thing, you can always spot the fake. And that is why my sermon is entitled, Do You Know His Voice, Not Do You Know Their Voice? The goal of this passage is not to know all the false prophets' voices. It's to know the voice of the true prophet. Because when you know the voice of the true prophet, you'll spot the fake from a mile away. Have you noticed that in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been using the image of twos. And those twos contrast the true and the false. So two gates, narrow and wide. Two trees, healthy and sick. Later on, when Macklin preaches, two foundations, rock and sand. But all this time, Jesus has only given us one prophet, the false one, which begs the question in us, hey, Jesus, you've been setting up the true and false. If this is a false prophet, who in the world is a true prophet? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. He's the one talking to you right now. And that's your application for this morning. 
The end goal of this message is not to recognize all the different lies that Satan, the world, and the church might throw at you. The end goal is to recognize Jesus, that Jesus is your true prophet. That is why he came. I started out this sermon asking, what happens when you listen to the wrong voice in life? And that's not just a story of the drug epidemic going on in America. That's our story too. If you go back in the Garden of Eden, all our problems started because we listened to the wrong voice. We listened to the lies of the serpent over the voice of God. And in that moment, Romans 1 says, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie, which has left us blind. We oftentimes think about sin as being guilty, but the the Bible talks about sin as being blind, being ignorant. And you know what Jesus did? We saw it in that passage in Ezekiel 34. God looked at us, sheep without a shepherd, harassed, in danger, walking around blind, not being able to find the truth, and he sent the truth for us. Jesus shows up in the Sermon on the Mount as our true prophet. That is Matthew's main point of his whole gospel, is Jesus is a true prophet that you've been looking for. And you see that all throughout the sermon with his words. Have you noticed that he starts exchanging lies for truth? Here's the constant refrain we've heard. You have heard it said this, but I say to you this. Meaning, you have heard lies about the Old Testament. You have heard lies about the law. But I say to you, here is the truth about God and his law. So Jesus is not speaking on behalf of God. He's speaking as God. Jesus is not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, I say. And later on, as you go throughout Matthew, you see our great prophet Jesus take up his pulpit. But Jesus' pulpit is not a fancy one like this. Jesus' pulpit is the ruggedness of the cross. And on that cross, he speaks the deepest truth that we need in our lives. That although we exchange the truth about God for a lie, now God was exchanging himself for us. Jesus, as the light of the world, plunged himself into your darkness so this morning you can finally see. And what does he want you to see? Him. So this week, would you do that? Would you strive to see him? Would you want to listen to him above all others? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is your great prophet. And when you listen to him, false prophets don't stand a chance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways you care for us and draw us out of blindness, Lord. We, we praise your name. Lord, now as we go to this table, help us to see your son in it as well, that we may be able to combat the voices of the enemy and trust in you evermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.